When you land in Cape Town, you see where there are Black communities, right? And you can see mm -hmm, the wealth mm -hmm. when you drive around Cape Town and, and the disparity, mm -hmm. right? So, I mean, it's still structural. There's literally a train track that runs between what was a former white community and a former community of color. Mm. And that train track needs to go. Welcome, fam. This is Courtney Russell Jr. And I'm here with my co-host, Emily Brocker. Welcome to Humanize. We are two Americans with totally different backgrounds and life experiences. We're coming together on this podcast to dive right at the heart of the three things that shut down tough conversations about race, culture, power, and ego. The stories you are about to hear are meant to humanize those deeply involved in social justice. Welcome to the work, y'all. Let's get it. What's going on, Humanized family? Another great episode is about to be upon you. We are here. We are pushing the culture. We are making sure that the space is going to be, I don't understand, safe, unsafe, uncomfortable, but I love to sit in the discomfort of the work. It should be uncomfortable so that you know that it's worth it, you know? And so let's get to that. But before we even get to that, I just want to have a disclaimer out there. All of these conversations have been brought apart with permission from the individuals. And so when you're doing this work, please make sure that you have formed a relationship first and foremost and have gotten the permission to dive deep into these kind of talks. And so before we even go any further, just please take a moment, center, and understand that this work is too important to take lightly. With that being said, let's get to work. Appreciate it. Huh. All right. So I'm excited to introduce our guest. I'm so curious about this episode. Yeah. We have Idolette McVicker. Yes. I was practicing your name. <laughs> Welcome. Thank you. She's the author of Recovering Racists, Dismantling White Supremacy and Reclaiming Our Humanity. And I ran into Idolet on Instagram and I was like, wow, this woman is from South Africa. She's had an incredible journey. This book looks amazing. Please come talk to us. <laughs> so thank you for saying yes. I really, really appreciate it. Well, you had the word humanize in there, right? So I'm like, what? Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> of course. <laughs> yes. We're speaking the same language. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Yes, that was kind of like when Courtney and I were trying to distill, you know, what do we want to do in this podcast? It just came back to humanize mm -hmm. and humanizing each other right. and recognizing our humanity. So I'm so excited to yeah. hear from you on this. So you're you're calling in from Canada, yeah? Correct, yeah. So I'm sitting on the unceded territories of the Kwantlen, the Semiyama, and the Stolo peoples. Mm. And it's what's known as Surrey, British Columbia. So in close proximity to the U.S. border. Like, we live in close proximity. Yes. So, yeah, that's where I'm located now. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So, here's what I'm thinking. I'd love to read a quote from your book that just really jumped out at me for a number of different reasons. And Idolette does not know what quote I'm about to read. <laughs> like, we got to wing this. Yes. And, yeah. And so, I'm going to read this quote. And then I would just love to hear your story about how you you know, moved from apartheid South Africa through your life and through your journey to to writing this quote for public consumption. Mm. And I just want to honor as well that maybe you can help me understand the, like exactly what's happening with the profits of the book. But I believe 90% yeah. of the profits of your book, you're giving 
back to BIPOC community. Is that right? Correct. Yeah. So, uh, so from the first two checks, we've already given ninety percent of that. So the first check, because yeah, uh, because we live well. <laughs> how can I write about this and make a profit? Right. Like I mean. Yeah. Right. So the first check already went to the Residential School Survivor Society here in Canada, mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. that's part of the story that Canada has to grapple with, right? And then the second mm-hmm. check went back to South Africa, and in relationship, as you were you were saying, also just with friends, just saying, what do we do with this money? Where would you like to see this go? And conversations, mm-hmm. and so then yeah. we got to send it back to where they really wanted it to go, and most of that was to education and mm. just. Yeah, so changing the narrative, right? Like trying to change the story. So while political freedom has come to South Africa so much, economic freedom still has mm. to come and uh, mm. the this, this shifts still have to come, right? And, you know, when apartheid ended in South Africa, I feel like white people kind of got to go, oh, great, now let's go get on with the story. And there wasn't really a requirement and there was just so much generosity from Black communities and Black leaders and... I think there's this, there's a cost, right? Mm-hmm. I benefited so much. Like I literally benefited from being in a white school in South mm-hmm. Africa. So every day the apartheid government gave more money to me. And so the third check will now go to the U.S. And so this is going to be, I have to ask still. I just got it because the book got published on April 12th. And so that check came a few weeks later. And so now mm-hmm. it's like, okay, what do we do with this? And, you know, whether it goes mm-hmm. to... I don't know. There's different communities, or I, I'll ask. I'm, I'm gonna. This will also happen in relationship, right? Mm-hmm. Where do we send mm-hmm. this money? Yeah. And, and for me, it's an, mm-hmm. you know, it's the spirit of the thing too. Hopefully, the, it's not. An, it's not transactional, right? But becomes this river of goodness. Hopefully, mm-hmm. to help mm-hmm. be part of just even. It's a little trickle. <laughs> it's a trickle, right? Yeah. But shift, <laughs> yeah. create change, right? Yes, ma'am. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah. So there. That's that's what that is. And you know, I I don't know if you like the whole the Juneteenth. I was so mad last night again. I don't know if you you wanted to keep this green, but I was seeing that a corporation in the U.S. had tried to trademark the word Juneteenth. Oh, really? I hadn't heard that. Yes. So in September last year, they- <laughs> because we can commodify anything. <laughs> and so then I was like, and they're like, well, maybe they were trying to do something good for black communities. And then you go and look at the board of directors and you go and look at the leadership and it's like all white. And I was like, right. Ah. So thankfully, there was enough outrage on Twitter that mm. Walmart apologized and they subtracted the application. But I'm like, What? You want to make money? Oh, just it's that. I'm having that moment too, just with, you know, so as we were recording this, yesterday was the day that, you know, I think the numbers at 18 kids yeah. were killed in yeah. Texas. Yeah. And just feeling like the way in which this country is prioritizing the NRA and their profits and bending to that and saying profits over humanity. How far have we come since slavery? Oh, my God. Like, if that's the same driving principle, we're listening to 1619 Project and, like, you know, there's so many structures that are in place to just bring so much money to so few people. And it doesn't matter who dies and who suffers. For me, it's not surprising because everything was underpinned by economics. Right. You know, and so when you speak about every system, beginning with slavery, education, healthcare, mass incarceration, it always comes back to the bottom line. Mm -hmm. And the unfortunate truth is they had to marginalize and differentiate and we use our eyes. And so the color of your skin 
makes it so that, okay, that person, let's make money off of them. That person, they're the people making the money, mm. you know? And so that's just the reality of the world that we live in. And as an entrepreneur myself, I love capitalism. However, capitalism in a form of everyone being empowered and not just you have to be poor so I can be rich. That's, mm-hmm. That is what is existing today, mm-hmm. you know? And so if there was a place where if I have a superior product, I am the one making the money, that's that my competitive nature. I love that. But I don't like to disempower individuals and step on their necks and get things that is not deserving of me in order to to thrive. And that's mm-hmm. just the unfortunate truth about BIPOC and, and white individuals and people like that who feel as though I've been in power for so long. I want to remain power and I'm going to do whatever it takes to do that, even at the risk of hurting your family. And so like, it's it's not surprising that Walmart would even try to do that or you you have people trying to commodify anything and everything because it's about power and economics. Yeah. Ugh. Ugh. So I, I just want to honor your decision to... Yes. ...to donate the, you know, from your book. So I just... Uh, I really appreciate that. It says a lot about you. Yes. A lot, you. a lot. So let me read this quote because it really it stuck out. So... To dismember is to tear apart. When we remember, we are putting things back together. Fragments, stories, memories, communities. We join the Spirit's work of knitting us together. The fragments that have been scattered and the pieces of our humanity that have been sacrificed on altars of dehumanization and greed are slowly returned to us. Yeah. So, yeah, how did you get from where you were born to writing this. <laughs> Just go for it. Yep. <laughs> you get to pick and choose your story. <laughs> you know, I also wrote my ancestors, my forefathers, the people who had created apartheid, really tried to set up the system to benefit their community. Yes. Right? They wanted to protect the white Afrikaner community in particular, but you know, in a larger effect, the white community in South Africa. Yes. And the thing that they did not keep in mind is that you cannot oppress others. You cannot take communities. You cannot literally move a community into the sea, which is like what they did with District 6 in Cape Town and forcibly removed people from that. You can't do that and expect the, there not be ripples through time. Mm. And so... For me, they did that, trying to set me up with all of this privilege, and yet they forgot that I needed a soul. (laughs) That my humanity needs to be whole as well, right? (laughs) (laughs) And so I can't. When you oppress another, that oppression is in your own soul. And then in a small, it's it's not comparable. I also want to make sure... That is acknowledged, right? But there's, for me, this quest has been coming out of apartheid for me was about reclaiming my humanity. It's like, how do I become whole? How do I become free? Mm. And when I voted in that first democratic elections, Nelson Mandela, the former president, the first president, black president of South Africa, said, you know, it was a long walk to freedom. And for me, it felt like when I voted in that first democratic elections, my long walk to freedom only started. And then I was in my 20s. Mm. And I kind of set out and set off into the world. I moved to Taiwan. 
and moved to Canada about 22 years ago when I fell in love with Canadian. <laughs> um, and so my story kind of took me into the world. But um, yeah, it was, I was looking for my humanity. I was looking for freedom myself. And it Can was like, just... I was stuck. Uh -huh. mm. I felt stuck. Can you describe, like, paint a picture of what apartheid South Africa looked like yes. and what your experience of that was and what what helped you kind of open your eyes to a missing part of your soul? Right, right. So, and I'm going to give a white perspective, yeah. right? And and I also, I also want to be mindful, like, you know, because this is hard things, yes. right? Mm -hmm. And so to hear a white woman talk about this stuff just for people to take care of their hearts mm -hmm. yeah. and to mm -hmm. do whatever they need to do. Walk away <laughs> if you can't listen mm. to me, right? Thank you Just, for naming them. Right? And so I grew up right at the center of apartheid. So apartheid lasted from 1948 to 1994, 46 years. In the context of when we're recording this too, I'm, I'm mindful of just how all these stories are connected. That knee was on Mr. George Floyd's neck for eight minutes and 46 seconds. Slavery lasted for 246 years. Mm -hmm. These stories are connected, right? Mm -hmm. 46 years of apartheid. So I was born right into the center of that in a town called Parl. It's about an hour outside of Cape Town. And I lived in an all-white neighborhood all my life until I left home. I went to an all-white school. And on Sunday and sometimes on Wednesdays and sometimes on Sunday evenings, we went to an all-white church. And so apartheid was a system of laws that was created to separate people based on the color of our skin. They created four groups of racial categories. In fact, one of those categories was created by apartheid. It didn't exist mm. before apartheid. And so every person had to have a racial designation. So literally when I was born on the white side of the hospital, on my birth certificate said white. Mm -hmm. So I was very aware of a racial identity from the start. And so... I have a memory of walking with my dad through the main street in Parl, walking to the post office and holding his hand and walking in through a door that said whites only. And so I have gone back into that memory and have just sat with that, what that would have meant to people who had to walk in through the other doors. Mm -hmm. What did that mean to people who didn't walk through that door? What did it feel like inside and what did it feel like outside? So that was the context. So when I was about 16 years old, my dad was a German teacher and he took us to Germany. And he wasn't German, he, he studied German, became a teacher and took us to Germany. And one of the places he took us was Dachau, which is a concentration camp in Germany. And I remember so clearly that day, here was this white girl from South Africa walking around here. And I was thinking, how can people be so inhumane. Hmm. How can people be so cruel to each other? Mm -hmm. And I hadn't connected the story of what the context that I was growing up. But I went back from Germany with that story embedded into my soul, went back and books were starting to get unbanned in South Africa. So I remember walking to the library one day and there was this turnstile and it said recently unbanned books. <laughs> oh yeah, I want to go there. <laughs> So I did. And I was like, ooh, yeah. this feels a little dangerous, right? Oh, no. And I picked up this <laughs> oh, <no>. book. <laughs> I'm like, oh, no. whoa. <laughs> oh, no. And then, you know, I read that book and that book really shattered my consciousness because I had been told a very specific story about what it meant mm. to grow up 
in South Africa, what it meant to be an Afrikaner, which meant we were white, we spoke Afrikaans. And so that shattered my consciousness in a way that I asked, what does it mean to be human now? Like, I've been told all these lies about what had actually happened in South Africa. And what do I do with that? Mm. So I walked, Mm. yeah, I walked away from that trying to find, okay, what does it mean to be human in this world? And I had a sense of a largeness, a largeness of our humanity, our collective humanity, but I couldn't see it in the small white tightness that I grew up in. Mm. Tightness. (laughs) Can you say more about that tightness? When you confine others, right? We were literally confined to very specific neighborhoods Mm. or places in the hospital or in the post office or where you were allowed to sit. And that confinement, it tightens, right? It restricts. And so there was a period where Black men had to carry a pass in South Africa, right? And I love this story because when they when they told the black women that they had to carry a pass to the the women rose up and they were they, they marched <laughs> they marched to Pretoria, which was the center of power in South Africa at the yes. time. Sounds like black women. I love it. I love it, right? <laughs> oh my word. I and when I couldn't find ancestors that I could respect or that I, I hadn't mm. kind of reconciled that piece yet. I look to those women because yeah. there was a, you know, a, there's, it was kind of a mining metaphor. And they talk about when you strike a woman, you strike a rock. So not in the physical sense, but in the, in the, in the idea when you mine something, but when you get to a rock, toughness. yeah, you strike a woman, you strike a rock. Yes. And <laughs> it's like the women are like, we will have none of this, but yeah. So there was that confinement and there was also that spirit of liberation at work, mm. right? Hmm. beautifully at work, powerfully at work, just not in my community. <laughs> yeah. Wow. You have brought up so many things. Like, I have, I've been, I've been right here. <laughs> Courtney's writing yeah. down like crazy. <laughs> it sounds like America gave the blueprint for how to be an active racist. You know what I mean? Like, it's the white supremacy was done so well that other individuals, other countries had to like, damn, that makes a lot of sense, you know? And so, like, to hear how it was at apartheid and all this, like, it just it gave me chills because, like, I'm not an African-American because I'm from the West Indies. However, I'm a black man here in America. And so I automatically, oh, go back to your country. It's Africa. You know what I mean? And so it's like yeah, yeah. to hear, like, apartheid was mainly because of the color of your skin is a chilling, like, similarity to what we had to go through here in America. You know, and you talked about earlier freedom without political freedom. Is that even freedom? Yeah. And so, like, all of these things that you were hitting on would just, like, punch me in my face. And I was like, yo, I can't wait to come in. Put me in, coach. You know, like, I, I need to, <laughs> I want to I wanna say this, you know, because, like, you said something. Well, one of the main things that you said that I really want to speak on is what does it mean to be other? Like, what does it mean to be white? What does it mean to be black? What does it mean to be something other or be named by an outside source instead of coming to your own realization of who you are. You know, so those labels are not just in the U.S. They're like international. Like, I see you, you got to be a white woman. They see me, I got to be a black man. What does that mean to me? Like, I grew up in a Caribbean household where I didn't know what it meant to be black. 
You know, like, what does that mean to me? Like, and so those superimposed labels are limiting, confining, restricting. So now when I speak and Emily and I have this platform to talk, it's so amazing to be in, in a non-confined state. Like, let's just see what we're going to talk about when we talk. Let's go. You know, like that should be just a metaphor for the world. Like, I don't know how this person is going to grow up. I'm not going to say, hey, you're white. You should do this. You should move like this. You should go through that door. You should live over here. You should go to that school. I just want to see what she does. And that's freedom, you know? And so, like, just to hear that it was happening over there, yo, that's, wow, that's crazy to me. That's amazing. Yeah. It's all deeply connected. Yes. So there's, well, it's it's been written that the apartheid leaders came to Canada to study the reserve system mm. here, what Canada did with indigenous people, right? Wow. wow. And then went and implemented that in South Africa. But there's also deep connections with the U.S., and I haven't studied this enough. I need to do more deeper work. But there was a, a study by the Carnegie Commission that was actually paid for by the Carnegie Commission yeah. that studied what was called the poor white problem in South Africa. <laughs> and that was used then to create this very nationalistic ideology and language and, 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 and kind of helped propel the national party in South Africa and the, to, come, to come into power in 1948. Mm. And... Some of that research was used for the U.S. Yeah. They wanted to understand what do we do with white people and we're poor. And yeah, so there's there's a lot of interconnectedness. There's a, I mean, there's a book. I'm trying to remember the book's name. There's a woman who's done a lot of research on that. And I, like, I need to, that that's sort of, I feel like that's some of the next chapters of of, un, of unlearning and learning, right? Awesome. Could, could I ask a question? Why the title of your book, Recovering Racist? Okay. So I've been on this journey like since I was 16, I guess, uh -huh. right? Right now I'm 49 years old, but I was trying to figure out what does it mean to be human in this world? I did not feel like I belonged in the circle of humanity. There was a moment of deep shame when I was in Taiwan, when I realized when people talk about apartheid and I, I'm in the story that I was not on the right side of justice mm. and that that was how I was perceived. And I, and I saw myself being perceived in that way whether that is true or not. But I saw that I didn't feel like I had the right to sit in the circle of humanity. And I wanted to figure out what does it mean to come out of that shame? How do I walk out of that shame? How do I try and make it right? Not that I can, but what can I do? What is my part to play? How do I move out of shame and then do the right thing mm. and reclaim my humanity? Mm. And so it was this long journey of, of reading, just hungry for any kind of information that would tell me that there was room for me at the table, that I had a right to belong in the circle of humanity, right? And one of the books was No Future Without Forgiveness by the Archbishop Desmond Tutu. And that really was about the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. But in the book, he talked about the concept of Ubuntu, which is really our connectedness, our belonging to each other. It means I am because you are. Yeah. And how we are deeply connected to each other and our humanity is connected to each other. And in a beautiful way that says, okay, there's room for me. I don't feel it in my soul yet, but I know there's room here. And so this is what the archbishop says. If he says it, I'm going to believe it, right? <laughs> <laughs> I'm just going to trust it. And so I just kept walking and looking for clues and crumbs and nourishment. Yeah to figure out what does it mean for me as a white Afrikaner woman in this world. 
Then in 2016 or 2017, I was sitting at a conference in Grand Rapids and the Reverend Kelly Brown Douglas was speaking and she had written a book, Stand Your Ground. And she was speaking and she said to the room and she was quoting a friend, she said, the only thing white people can be are recovering racists. Hmm. And I was like, mm-hmm. I asked my friend, did she, did she just say that? Did I rear that correctly? <laughs> because I wanted to confirm that because my body went, go. <laughs> my body said, whoa, that, yeah. that is truth. That thing mm. that she just said is truth, but I need to make sure that, did I actually hear that? Yeah. And so mm-hmm. it just, it felt like there was this moment of rock bottom. And when she said that, and I started walking, I was like, okay, let me sit with that. I'm going to feel how that feels in my body. I'm going to, I'm just going to walk with it yeah. and see what that does in me. Yeah. Is there goodness that comes from this? Mm. And so I started hearing other people, other black people saying, white people use this language of recovery, recovering races, those, th- that kind of language. And I was like, for me, it was very powerful because it felt like I no longer had to run. I didn't have to prove to the world what a good white person I was. Mm-hmm. And I could use all that energy that I was trying to prove how good and white I was to actually do some. be anti-racist, right? To actually do some good things, right? right. Yes. And so that's where that comes from. Mm. Wow. Th- the reason I ask is because I always, in my mind, try to wear the shoes of other people. And so I, I often think, like, if I could resurrect a slave owner, like, what type of mentality did you have to have to see what was going on to another human being to justify in your mind that this was okay? Like, you know what I mean? So I, it's like, I see your book saying dismantling white supremacy and reclaiming humanity. And I'm like, there's no way possible that you could have been like, yeah, this is normal. Because it's a, it's a visceral thing to see someone being lynched and be like, oh, I'm going to eat a sandwich right now. You know what I mean? Like that, that to me is totally against, I don't have to like a person, but it takes a lot to kill a person. Yes. Do you see like it? So when y'all saw that, I'm like, oh, that's a very intriguing title. And I want to dive deep in that because at the end of the day, as a doctor, when you recover from something, you have to admit its existence. Yes. Right. You have to say, I have this disease. You're not going to recover from something if you're hundred percent well. Like, that's against everything to recover. I'm not going to recover from COVID if I never had COVID. Yeah. You know? And like, yeah. and so if we're going to recover from not being human to someone else or dehumanizing someone else, we have to admit, I did that shit. And so, like, I I, I appreciate the, the honesty yeah. in the time. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. You know, like, when I, I my kids were young and I, I remember I was trying to make sense. And you can't, how do you make sense of this? awfulness right but I was like of my place in the world and and I remember writing one day and I was like just writing this letter to my ancestors to my forefathers and I said I a doctor will not be able to diagnose what I have but I have a disease I have apartheid Mm. (laughs) Mm. wow like you talk in my language yes Mm. yeah you're right yes yes (laughs) And I felt it in my bones. I felt it in my blood. And I was like, I want to get rid of this disease, this 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 ease and this disease. Yeah. The underlying issue to a lot of like racism is a public health issue. It's a public health issue is it because if you go back to environmental racism, lead poisoning, which causes somatic issues. If you talk about mental health issues, 
okay, let's talk about homelessness. Let's talk about all of these things. Let's talk education. Water. Wa yeah. So if we talk about all of these systems that have been put in place and with racism being the culprit, people know yeah, it's not about, everything's not about race. But in this country, how can we even say that when literally it's built on the backs of individuals that look like me? Mm -hmm. It's not a theoretical thing like, no, it's just a mental thing. No, it happened. I needed black people. I am a white man. I need to build country, keep wealth in my family. I got to use something. I have to use someone to get the cotton, to make sure that it's, it's processed. I need black people. Let's get them. I like there is it's one plus one equals two. It's there. I'm not mad at white people. It happened. I did a lot of shit that I can't be like, it happened in the past. What are we gonna do now? Cause to continue to say it's not happening? No. White man, let's talk. You know, it makes me think, you know, Courtney, you're talking about like how do you get into the mind of a slave yeah. owner and Idolette, I've heard you mention many times your body, your bones, the reactions. And it is just really striking me as I'm <laughs> in a process with my therapist of trying to feel my body more, just yeah. in recognizing how much society is focused on mental, mental up and out, you know, move away from your body. Don't trust your body. It's about your mm -hmm. mind. It's about what you're thinking and what a tool of white supremacy that is, because if we disconnect, if we hone that skill of disconnecting from those human bodily instincts, which will, I have faith, will respond in the face of seeing a human getting hurt, being hurt. But if we disconnect from that, we don't have that information. We can override it with greed. We can override it with these other things. So just the act of embodiment is an act of resistance in this context, you know? What we've done really well on both sides of this argument has been to normalize the past. I'm a slave. I'm a black man. This is my station in life. I'm going to make the best of it. I'm going to normalize poverty. White people have been very well at normalizing and making it like, you know what? Mm. It is what it is. And when you go against that, now it's like, why do you want to disrupt? Why, why do you want to cause so much trouble? Everyone is happy because there are some black people like, yo, when are we going to get over slavery? Why are we harping on that? You know, and so like mm -hmm. it's not just white people that are are perpetuating this. We as black people are also saying, you know what? It happened. It is what it is. Let's get over it. Look what we have. We have a lot of rich black people. But I promise you for every yeah. Barack Obama, it's a hundred thousand other black men who will never see that. So for every Oprah, oh, yeah. there's a hundred thousand black women who would never be able to live that kind of life. So you're looking at the outliers, you're looking at the disclaim, you're looking at those people who have broken through and trying to make it seem like that's happening a lot. That's the issue. So why supremacy is so brilliant? We'll give a couple of y'all some crumbs. We'll make y'all, we'll give a couple of you guys a little bit of hope that things are changing and still keep what we're going on. And it's evident, Roe versus Wade, problem with voting, gerrymandering, environmental, like those, that's the evident is the evidence as to we really ain't giving y'all nothing, but we're going to paint a picture that we're, we're moving in the right direction without actually moving in the right direction. Because it's 2022 and we're still talking about voting rights. Yeah. Come on, man. <laughs> Come on. Man. That's crazy. <laughs> like, so, yeah, I just, that had to be said. I, I don't, I, I love, I love it. You bring it up a lot. You bring it up a lot. You bring it up a lot. Ila, I'm wondering if in, you know, earlier you said you had this kind of 
maybe it's a spiritual question of what does it mean to be human in this mm-hmm. world? How, where are you on your journey with that mm. question? Mm. You know, I think the irony is the more I try to look for it away from where I grew up, the more I was called back into it. So as I was trying to say, well, I was not, I'm not a white Afrikaner or like, you know what I mean? Like I was trying to kind of walk away from that. Mm-hmm. I was like, ah, oh, I'm done with that. The more over time now I'm, I'm returning and I'm owning that. And so my humanity mm-hmm. is deeply connected to my people. And so when you were saying, what does it mean to be in the shoes of a slave owner? There's something that I need to do. There, there, I ask a question in the book, who is the hardest person for you to honor? Mm. And when I asked that question, I knew it would be a racist white Afrikaner. And, and I was like, that's my work. Because that showed me the mm-hmm. shadow side of me. There's work for me to do there. Mm-hmm. And so when I say a return, I was like, there's a movement of returning. And there's an invitation in some way to, to not discard or not to dismiss but to walk towards not condoning any racist act, but to see how can I be part of changing or being with my people. Yes. Right? Yeah. Yes. And if it's like the the word apartheid means a state of being apart, apart or yes. apartness, yes. then the opposite, the elixir yes. is integration. Yes. yes. You know, and I think that's on a cellular emotional level we can't solve (laughs) the situations we created with apartness with more apartness no yeah we can't yeah right and so how do i humanize how do i walk towards yeah Mm -hmm. and that and that was also like that was actually also compelling by one of my my black friends she's like there is literally a community in south africa that's (laughs) it started after 1994 and it's called urania and it's a town where only white people live and oh. she said to me, I want you mm-hmm. to go to Irania. She's like, Kosa She's like, I want you to go to Irania. And I'm like, what? So I'm like going and researching this town and it's growing. And I'm like, yeah. what mm-hmm. is beneath that? I'm not surprised. Like, what, <laughs> what is beneath that? Yeah. Right. And so anyway, so that's part of that for me is that journey. Yeah. And yeah. And it also, see, I always like to look at both sides of a coin. As a black man, I know slavery is horrible. I felt the pain. I feel the pain of poverty moving in the world, growing up how I grew up, this and that. But can you imagine the pressure on white men in a day to sustain something, even if they felt like it was bad? Because you got histories upon history of slave ownership. And they're like, man, you know what? While you sit on the bed with your wife, you're like, this is not right, but I got to keep this going or else I'm going to be kicked out of my family. I'm going to be kicked out of my community. I'm a white man. I got to own slaves. Mm. So that's a different, also a different level of pressure too, to think on the other side of that, like if you are going to a lynching and you feel viscerally like, damn, it's a black dude who, what if the black guy and the white guy secretly had a friendship? Because you can't tell me no slaves and no slave owners were cool sometimes, but he had to kill them or else he's going to lose his station in life. Yeah, and but... so now you're looking, up, you're looking up there at this dude, you're like, wow, I just hung a friend because the pressures of keeping my social standing is so strong that I had to do that or I may die or lose 
money or lose my family or my like it's or my wife may look at me as less of a man or my children it just the whole system is built to make sure like it, it's it's I'm sorry. I get, yeah, I yeah, just do a lot of thinking I, about that. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, you're very empathetic in that, but I'm like, the cost, the cost of that. Mm-hmm. 100%. Even like you lose your humanity. When you make that, every little small little decision you make, you lose your humanity. Agree. And I think that's what, and then the, and then the, the generations that come are like, well, what do we do with this? Right. Uh, you're reminding me of a story mm. of Jane Fonda's dad watched a lynching. And he was a yeah. little boy and his dad mm. had a print shop. I don't know if you know the story. No. Mm-mm. His dad had a print shop and and they watched and he and and that profoundly obviously changed his life. And also how he then talked about it at home. Like in, you can see Ray's a, a, somebody like Jane Fonda, right? Who deeply yeah. believed in social justice. Mm. And it's like, but I don't think you can watch something like I I don't know, like that. Oh your humanity, like that you lose you ha- you sacrifice that. Like yeah. you know. You go home and you drink a lot. And you pretend like it's not happening. Yes. You don't just go home an integrated person no. and sleep well. No. You perpetuate and you start hitting your kids. Yes. And, you know, like, this is not a functioning not. society, even though everyone likes the script of, like, look how wealthy this country is, you know, but it's not. Uh, it's painful. The violence is still, yeah, the it's violence painful. is still, you know, every day. Like we hear the stories, right? The, 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 what's yep. the violence on the land? I think, I, and this is one thing for me too. Like I felt like the land cried out in South Africa, right? The land yeah. tells the story. Mm. You put your feet on that ground. Mm. You walk the sidewalks in, in the U.S. The violence is, it's there, right? Um, yeah. Here, like here yeah. with residential schools and communities, right? Yeah. yeah. One thing I've always wondered about since my travels in South Africa, or I experienced when was this in time? 2002. Okay. I experienced the racism as so overt and accepted. Like, this is just, this is just how it is. I was traveling alone as a white woman, a white, you know, young woman. I was 22 at the time. And there was this funny experience of like, you know, staying in a rural Afrikaans homestay and them, you know, talking about how awful it is that the the squatters can just wake up on their land and they they just have that land and how apartheid principles have been flipped and switched to oppress white people. And then I'd be like traveling on my own in, you know, in public taxis and the black people would be so concerned. They'd hear my American accent and they would be like, oh, you're an American. You're not South African. Okay, we we have your back. Like, we're going to make sure you get anywhere you need to go. Yeah. And they would walk me in between places. And then I had this experience I've talked about before where this black woman was walking me towards my hostel. She's like, it's not safe. It's not." I wasn't in like Joburg or something. I was some some rural area. And then these two white boys came up to me and they're like, hey, auntie, you came, you arrived. Like, thank you you know, and like kind of shoot away this black woman. And I was like, who are these boys? And they're like, we just saved you from this black woman. Like you shouldn't be walking with a black woman. They were like preteen. And I was just like, what is happening? And so my experience was pretty short. And like, you also mentioned that you were aware of your identity for a long time. I was not aware of my white identity for a long, long, long time, like into grad school, I would say. I was aware that I was white, but I wasn't aware of my white identity. So my curiosity is just around like differences between the racism in the States and racism in South Africa. And I guess my curiosity is what I experience as it's more overtness and like a whole political party, you know, the apartheid party separating things. Is there less denial 
of racism and more opportunity to address it? Or is it just just as squirmy and like going into corners and figuring out ways to come back out as it is in the States? <laughs> yeah, it's pretty squirmy, I think, as well. I mean, it's over it's over yeah. to like literally a town where you can go and live if you're white. But it's it's you know, people didn't want to talk white people didn't want to talk about apartheid. Okay. They wanted to just have the barbecue in the backyard, the braai, and I, I didn't I couldn't find people who wanted to talk about what have we done? <laughs> can we just yeah. can we just talk about what mm. we've done? People don't want they want to talk about rugby. They want to talk about mm. sports and the weather and what are we gonna do this weekend or cricket, right? Yeah. But I found as I was black people and people of color wanted to talk about it and were ready to talk about it. Mm-hmm. And we're talking about it. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I just want to sit mm-hmm. here and I like because I needed to talk about it as well. Mm-hmm. And so like mm-hmm. it gets locked up. Like I literally like the first time I sat next to a black woman at a breakfast table, I could almost not talk. It felt like I had rocks in my mouth. It was this hmm. very body embodied somatic moment for me. And I was like, I have to pay attention to that. What does that mean? Right. And so how locked up. Mm. So. It's hard not to see the racism in South Africa, right? The other, the difference between South Africa and, and it's because it's a majority black country. Mm, Th- that's right. a very different feel to it, right? Yeah, yeah. 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 You know, there's, there's, yeah, there's places white people won't go. Mm-hmm. So we were in South Africa, my family, and we were in Durban and it's this beautiful, like, it's a city and I, we were at a restaurant and it's like, it felt like the way that South Africa needs to be. Like it was integrated, like people were just sitting together at the tables and who was serving and who was eating. It was all, it was, it, it worked, right? Like it was, um, yeah. there was, there have been other times when I walk into a coffee shop and it's all white people at the table and all black people or people of color behind serving, right? And I'm like, this yeah. is like... Yeah. How many years after apartheid? And this is still the reality. It's right here in this coffee shop, right? Like the place where my mom lives, for example, there is a community, a community of color. Like it's literally three kilometers from where she lives. Mm. And you won't see a white body in that place, in that community. Mm. People do not cross the lines. There's so much mm-hmm. fear and fear mongering. The stories that people tell themselves about I can't go there. Oh, oh, you shouldn't be. It's dangerous, right? Right. And right. so part of what you need to do is you need to justify that and just go because that spirit of intimidation wants to keep people out. Like it, it wants to keep people out. That fear, like apartheid was, it was such a fear yeah. and greed. Like it's many things, right? But the fear and greed was huge parts of that, right? Mm-hmm. So that still separates people. Wow. It's mm-hmm. still tangible. When you land in Cape Town, you see where there are black communities, right? And you can see mm-hmm, the wealth mm-hmm. when you drive around Cape Town and, and the disparity, mm-hmm. right? So, I mean, it's still structural. There's literally a train track that runs between what was a former white community and a former community of color. Mm. And that train track needs to go, right? Because that is a mm. structural reminder. And it's more expensive to live on the white, former white side of that train track mm-hmm. than it is to live on the side where it's a former community of color. And the taxes are less on the one side too, right? So it's like, it's str- it's structural <laughs> and still yeah, squirming. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. You, you, you spoke on fear, you know, and, and fear is something that feeds hate. It feeds greed. It feeds power. Because if you're afraid and you allow fear to drive you, because we should, we should, we should all have fear, but what's next? You know, like you're fear, you're fearful to have a child, you're fearful to go to school, but those things are still done, you know. But when 
slavery was a big thing or the reality that this could be overturned or done. Like, look at all of the things that came up out of that fear. You have Reconstruction, you have a civil war, you have people fighting to keep people in these, because we don't know on the other side of this fear, are these black people going to come and kill us because what we done? You know, so if a white person said, I don't want to live over there because of that fear is that they don't know what it looks like in that community. And so this is why white supremacy is allowed to perpetuate because of fear. And when we have these kind of conversations and these openness and the audacious love that it takes to really address the fear, that's the beginning of dismantling those systems of hate. Yeah. yeah, and when we move towards, we start getting to know each other. Oh my goodness! W- right, like, like yeah. I wouldn't want right. my friends to suffer, right? Like, but if I don't know them, if I don't know the person on the other side mm-hmm. of that line, yeah, right, mm-hmm. I, yeah. yeah, like relationally, then we can humanize each other. We won't tolerate the awfulness, right? Mm. <laughs> Connection, the the beginning of the antidote for fear. Man, I just have loved this conversation with you. I'm wondering if you can kind of give our listeners, oh, listeners, our listeners, I thought a little call to action around an assignment. You mentioned writing mm-hmm. a letter to your ancestors. Do you have a prompt that could help people, you know, if they wanted to do an exploration of that? Start with dear forefathers or dear foremothers, right? <laughs> yeah. What would you like to say Mm -hmm. to the ones who have gone before you? Just literally start a letter. I think that's a powerful exercise. I was in a call a few weeks ago and we were just literally naming ourselves. Like for me Mm. to name, this is where I'm from. This is where I'm sitting. This is where I'm held by the Drakenstein Mountains that was in the backyard. I think that's also a powerful exercise. So write a letter to your ancestors or your forefathers or foremothers. What would you like to know from them or tell them? What have you received from them? What has Mm -hmm. history brought you along down the lines? Yeah, makes sense. Mm -hmm. And then ask yourself also, like, who are you? Like, understanding where you come from. If you're a white listener, what has shaped that white identity, right? Yeah. In that call, I noticed that people were like, this is the first time I've said I'm from this Like, this is my background. My ancestors are from West Germany and from Norway and from whatever they had to say, right? And it was like, we have to say the first time you acknowledge land, it's a little bit awkward in the mouth, but do it. And every time you do it, practice, Mm -hmm. practice, right? Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. there's an Instagram account called United Street Tours, and I, I respect that so much. She's doing some work where she actually has people practice responses. Mm. She's doing beautiful mm. work. Like, what would you say if this, if somebody asked this? Practice, right? Mm-hmm. Sometimes we think we need to have the answer right away. It's like, you know, I've been, I practice every time I show up for something, right? In some yeah. way. And then you yeah. learn, oh, okay, this works. This doesn't work. Did I do harm? How may I restore you? Yeah. Mm. That's right? amazing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What, what is, the, you know, Aww. can we, like, just keep asking questions. I think questions are very liberative. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, We just really loved sharing space with you today. Thank you so much for the way that you have modeled such embodiment and put your experience out there in this book. We'll definitely link to the book and your social media handles in the show notes so people can explore more. Are there other ways people can get in touch with you? Yeah, social media. My my website is idalive.com. And yeah, I would just love Uh to, I'd love to connect. 
Thank you so much. We really appreciate it. Thanks for amazing conversation. I really love and appreciate your perspective. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. It's been an honor to be here with you. Thank you. Oh, wow. <laughs> Thanks for joining us on this episode of Humanize. Please remember to like and subscribe to our podcast so you don't miss an episode. Join us on Instagram or Facebook to continue this conversation at The Humanize Podcast. Let us know if you want to learn more about the professional trainings we offer. And of course, tune in next time as we continue the work. Thank you and much love.